Good morning. For those of you who have never met, I am Christy, Jeff's wife, and I am excited to get to share with you today in this series that we are in. Um, On the eve of Thanksgiving, I have to just share with you some things that I am thankful for, which is, it's actually not the eve of Thanksgiving. Adam called it this morning, happy Thanksgiving three days after, he said. Um, So happy Thanksgiving three days after. And this morning I woke up just thankful for my kids. I have these three crazy things that on any given day, I could be persuaded to trade them in at the zoo. But it has been fun to watch them grow into who God has made them to be. And they're getting to that age. We traveled for Thanksgiving. Anybody travel? We were gone for five days. We were on the road for four of the five days. And usually that is utter torture for us. But we actually had a moment where we turned around and everybody was quiet. It's called gadgets and books for one of them. And Jeff and I were actually able to have a conversation. We thought, wow, we're catching a glimpse of like adulthood here where we can function in a sane manner on this road trip. Um, But one of the funnest things about having three kids besides my life being crazy is that they are all so different. And um, even when it comes to their stuff and to this topic about money and being rich that we've been talking about, they're all very different. I have Allie, my oldest, who has the gift of giving, like her dad. She's like a river boy. You put something in her hand, it doesn't stay long. She's giving it away really quick. A couple months ago, they got money in the mail from Grandma for Valentine's Day, and they each got 10 bucks. And we went into a gas station, and Allie's like, a party. We're having a party. What kind of gum do you want? What kind of gum? Come on. We're all having gum. Tell me your flavor. And within five minutes, her 10 bucks was gone. She bought gum for the whole family and for half the strangers in the gas station. Ashley, my second, she is like, hmm, how do I describe her? She's like a um, systematic nurturer. Like she knows where her money is. She doesn't count it every day, but she knows how much is there and she has a plan for it. She's very strategic about it. She knows what she's going to do with it. But when a need comes around, she's really got a nurturing heart. And so if somebody needs something, she makes adjustments. So we're in the gas station and she's like, mom, how much does gum cost? Two bucks. Okay. If I buy the cheaper gum that costs a dollar, then I can still have enough to get you a $5 present and give $4 to the pet adoption place. So that's kind of how she works. JD, the third kid, he's the bank at our house. He's got this safe and it is stuffed with wadded up cash, but he knows exactly how much is there on any given day. He counts it every day. The other day he came to me and he said, mom, there are robbers in our house. I'm like, buddy, there's no robbers in our house. He goes, yes, there is. Cause yesterday I had $167 and today I have 157. Somebody robbed me. And I had to confess, baby, your sister had a field trip and your mom had no cash. <laughs> so he's always got cash if you need it. And JD, he, while he is very smart about money, he's not going to waste his money on gum that's going to be used up in a day. He's going to save it for something bigger. He doesn't know what that bigger is. And boy, he's going to, he almost, you might say he's hoarding it. We've been the most worried about him and his heart. And so um, when he was a little guy, 
I was putting him to bed one night, and we've been praying, God, you know, teach him to be generous or whatever. And he said, Mom, it's just, it's really hard to give to God. And I'm like, buddy, I, I know. I kind of have that same problem going on. I know it's hard. He goes, no, I really want to. I keep trying, but I just can't do it. And about that time, I realized he was holding something in his hand. He had a wad of quarters in his hand in the dark, up in the air. He goes, I keep praying God, you take it. It's yours. And when I let go, it all falls back down on me. (laughs) Then we had a little discussion about gravity and taking your money to church and all that kind of stuff. But um, kids are fun. They teach me valuable lessons, and it's been fun to watch their different approaches. We're in a series called Being Rich and What Matters Most. It's really a series about our stuff. It's really a series about proclaiming that God is faithful no matter what, proclaiming that he can do the impossible through you when you trust him. Scripture says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. The kicker is there's something that gets in the way of that love sometime, and it's our stuff. So pray with me, and then let's have a fun conversation together. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this place. We invite you into parts of our hearts that we would rather you not go. God, I confess before you, only you and I know the battles I have with this. God, forgive me. Help me to get it right and help me to proclaim how great you are to this generation and the next generation. God, prove to us that you can do more than we ever ask or imagine through Jesus Christ, through those who love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, It's interesting, even though my kids are all so different, all three of them, when they reached an age where they started to understand money, like that it has a value and like the magic plastic card that you swipe at the store has a bill attached at the end of the month, you know, they're like, mom, just go to the store and swipe that plastic thing again. When they got old enough to understand like, hey, you have you have to pay for that? They all came to the same conclusion at one point or another. They all at one point said, why do we have to have money? I mean, why can't everything just be free? I like that idea. Not a bad idea. So being the wise mother I am, I'm like, I don't know why we have to have money. We just have it. It might be a curse from like sin and the fall. And they're like, but mom, you also call it a blessing. Yeah, it's a blessing too. I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. There's a lot I don't know about money, but here are four things that I do know just to serve as a foundation for us. The first is this money is deeply connected to our hearts. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going. Somebody gave us stock one time. We'd never checked the stock market in our life, but boy, we were checking it every morning because all of a sudden stuff went there and guess what? Our heart went there. So it's deeply connected to your heart. The second thing is that um, it has the potential to come between you and God. There was a guy, Jeff talked about him a couple weeks ago, the rich young ruler he was called, and he was standing face to face with the king of the universe, Jesus, God's son, who was inviting him to go on this adventure. And he couldn't say yes because he loved his stuff so much he couldn't part with it. And it 
came between him and God. The scripture tells us that we can only serve one. We can't serve both God and money. The third thing I know about money is this. It also, on a positive note, has the potential to unleash God activity and abundance in this life and in the life to come. In the Old Testament, they were asked to give 10% of the first of all that they had to God. In Malachi 3.10, it says, test me in this and see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out such an abundant blessing that you're not going to have room to store it. In the New Testament, they got even crazier and people were selling houses and lands and businesses and leaving their family and they were giving it all to God. You got to remember, they just saw Jesus rise from the dead. So they were a little radical in the New Testament. And the scripture says that no one will give up any of that stuff that won't get a hundred times back in this life or in the life to come. I don't understand all that. We're going to talk about it in a minute. But there is a connection between God activity and abundance in this life and the life to come that has to do with our stuff. And then the fourth thing I know to be true about money is this. And Jeff has said this to us every week, that here in America, we have 99% more than the rest of the world. Here in Columbus, Georgia, the median household income is around $42,000. If you have $33,000 or more in a year in your house, you are the richest 1% in the world. Because we have so much To whom much is given, much is required. And so we have a greater responsibility to get it right with our stuff. I'm going to walk you through a passage that Jeff has walked you through. And then we're going to look at two different guys in scripture. And then I'm just going to kind of give you like some stories from my life on what God has taught me and said to me. Some may apply to you, some may not. And just brag a little bit on what I have seen God do through stuff. All right? 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 is the passage that we have based this series on. And it says, command. It's a strong word. It's not a suggestion. It's not an encouragement. It says, command. The thing I don't like about commands is I'm being told what to do. The thing I do like about commands is that Scripture teaches they're for my protection. They make my life better. If I believe that about God, then I have to believe that about this passage. Command those who are rich in this present world, which is all of us, if we have a roof over our head or two cars where one can get a flat tire or a garage where we can't park there because we have so much stuff in it. Those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put our hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. I hope you've heard us say, God wants you. Every good and perfect gift comes from God above, and he wants you to enjoy it. He's okay with you having air conditioning. He's okay with you having a spare bedroom for someone else to sleep in, all right? He gives it to us as a blessing for our enjoyment. But he also says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may be able to take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, what that last little phrase suggests to me is this. It seems like 
This is a warning that perhaps as human beings, we have the capacity or the tendency to choose a life that is not really life, to settle for something false or false security that is not really living. And it seems like it has to do with how we use our stuff. The other thing I see is some kind of connection. It keeps popping up in these scriptures between what we do with our stuff in this life and what happens in other people's eternities in the next life. All right? So just hang on to that thought. I'm going to ask you to humor me because I was an English major and I'm frustrated I never get to use that gift. Um, And we're going to compare and contrast two passages. And I'm going to do my best to make it very fun because when I said English, half of you just puked in your seat. So this is going to be fun. Luke chapter 12, 15 through 21. We're going to look at one guy and what he did with his stuff. Read this with me. It says, Then Jesus said to them, watch out, another warning, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That's not what I felt like yesterday when I was getting 40 million Black Friday messages on Saturday, like it's not too late and I'm seeing stuff I didn't even know I wanted until I saw the new ad that came out on my Amazon account. Life is That is truly life doesn't consist in just gathering more stuff for us. And then he tells a story about it. There was a certain rich man who yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I'll get a garage. I'll get an Uncle Bob's storage. And he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. You've worked hard for it. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? I hope you understand God wasn't upset that he had so much. God didn't call him a fool because he had an abundant harvest. We just read a verse in Malachi that said, if we trust God, we can expect that he will pour abundance on us. It was what he decided to do with his abundance. He decided to store it up for security for himself. And in verse 21, Jesus said, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. I'm blessed with this stuff. I keep it all for me. Use none of it for God. Matthew 14, 15 shows us an opposite example. It is written in all four of the Gospels, and I had a really hard time picking which one because each one has just awesome stuff you just have to know, so you have to go back and read them all later. But in Matthew, Jesus has been teaching out in the countryside for three days. His disciples haven't eaten for three days, and they come to Jesus, and they say, look, this is a remote place, and it's getting late. You need to send the crowds away, Jesus, so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus said, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. The disciples are like, one disciple said, it would cost a whole year's worth of wages. We don't have that much. And he says, well, what do you have? He says, 
we've got five loaves of bread and two fish. And that's not even ours. That's some kid's lunch that we just ripped off of him. We got five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus says a very important phrase. He says, bring them here to me. Don't eat it. Don't store it up for later. Bring it here for me. Bring it here to me. And then he directed the people to sit down on the grass as if to say, we're not using your resources today. We're working off of my resources. And he looked up to heaven and he gave thanks. And after he gave thanks, he broke the loaves and a miracle happened. He gave them to the disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm one of the disciples and I haven't eaten in three days, I'm sticking a piece in my mouth. You ever been to the buffet and your mother told you it's rude to eat off of the buffet, but you're so hungry. You're just like, when nobody's looking, like you stuff a chicken finger in your mouth and move on. All right. He gives it to the disciples. They have a choice of what to do with it. And they give it to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of the broken pieces that were left over. They each had their own basket left after they gave away what was in their hand. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children, maybe 20,000 people eating off of one kid's lunch. Both guys, both situation, both characters are given stuff. The first guy stores it up for himself. The second group gave it away and found that they had plenty left over, even more than they had in the beginning. I want to just have a conversation today about how to be good at being rich. Because according to the world's standards, we all, we are blessed. I don't know why God chose us to be here in America. You know one of the number one reasons that people turn their back on God is they say, there cannot be a God who is good and half of the world is starving. God is letting them starve. To which God would say, oh, no, no. I gave plenty out to plenty of people. We are the plan for the world. Can you believe that he chooses to use us, that he would trust us? with what he's given us, and we're his plan B for the world. It's exciting to get to be a part of that, but it's also, like I said in the beginning, it's one of the most difficult areas personally in my life. Nothing competes with my love for God like my control freakishness, my worry, my stress, my thoughts, wrapped around money and stuff and security. And so I'm going to share with you some of my journey, some suggestions that I've learned mostly from living with a man who lives by faith and not by sight and by seeing God's word in action. And the first one is this, give thanks for what you do have. Yesterday I saw on my computer all kinds of things I didn't have. And I was like feeling ripped off by God. Why don't we have that? Why don't we have? And forgetting that I'm surrounded by a house with three healthy children and the things that I do have. You know what the experts say? Really smart Harvard business people say that if you will wake up and write down three things you are thankful for every day, you'll be 25% happier. 
I know what you men are thinking. I'm going to buy her a journal for 10 bucks. She's going to be 25% happier. That's 25% less money that she spends. <laughs> it's, it's a principle. Thanks and giving go together. The more satisfied you are with what you have already, the easier it's going to be for you to be generous. Gratitude and generosity are Siamese twins. They go together. Jesus, when he did that miracle, he's God of the universe. He holds up the bread and the fish and he gave thanks. And then the miracle came. See, for most of us, we want to give thanks when things are good and after the miracle comes and God says, oh, no, no, that's not how it works. That's not how you please me. Without faith, it's impossible to please me. And so I'm going to ask you to be thankful before your life looks joyful. And I'm also going to ask you to give before you see how it's going to work out. And that's the second thing. The second thing is to put God first in whatever you do have. Jeff taught about this last week with percentage giving. In our house, we have decided that from our interpretation of Scripture, it is pretty doggone clear that God asks us to give the first 10% of everything that comes our way back to him. He says in Malachi, come back to me, return to me, and I will return to you. And the people are like, how do we return to you? He says, quit cheating me. Quit robbing me by not trusting me with the first 10%. And I have to be honest with you, I sat through that talk last week and I was cringing. First of all, two people that I love dearly and have invited to church forever came of all weeks last week. I wanted to crawl under the chair and think they're never going to come back. Second of all, I am very strategic and disciplined which are code words for I am greedy and controlling with money. I'm the one who has to make the budget work. So I'm sitting there going, yeah, that all sounds great in theory, but when you actually get down to crunching the numbers, let's think about this logically. And last week I missed most of what Jeff said because I felt like God spoke directly to me, and this is what he said. For those of you who are logical and careful and cautious (coughs) and greedy, Um, he said, think about this logically, Christy. I made your brain logical. Are you going to say to me, the king of the universe, that you can do more with your 10% than I can do with it? Do you mean to think that you can do more with 100% than I can do with 90? Oh, that sounded kind of silly. I was like, well, God, I I mean, it's December. It is Christmas. You don't know what my list is like. And he very quickly reminded me of a time, it was a December, when all I wanted for Christmas was a brown leather chair. And I had been saving and I had been strategic and all of a sudden, we got an unexpected check in the mail, like a big unexpected check in the mail. To me, it was a gift. God was giving me my leather chair. To my husband, it was a great opportunity to give more to God. I didn't like that because I would rather spend it on me. Spending on me is a lot more fun. Besides, there's a big hole in the corner of my living room that really needs a leather chair. So we argued about it for a while. And Jeff was like, baby, do you trust God? Do you not trust God? I'm like, I can't argue that one. 
So fine, I'll give up my leather chair. And I wrote the check because I write the checks and I put it in the offering. And this is how I know I wasn't cheerful about it. I still remember we didn't have plastic buckets. It, there was a silver ring with blue velvet. I still remember putting my check in there. I remember what everybody was wearing going down the aisle as my leather chair went down the aisle. I was not happy. And the very next week, guess what happened? Got an unexpected check in the mail from my mortgage company for exactly the amount I needed for my leather chair. And I know you're thinking, yay, God, I love it when he does that. But that, that was not the end of the lesson for me. I went and got my leather chair, and I stared at my leather chair. I sat in my leather chair. I tried out 20 different pillows in my leather chair. I mean, it was looking good in the corner of my living room. And then two weeks later, something happened. I got a new Pottery Barn magazine, and guess what was on the front cover? A way so much cooler leather chair than the one I had in my house. And all of a sudden, my leather chair was old, and I wanted a new leather chair. And God spoke to me that December because before the year was out, somebody made this for us. These are the names on this bookend of 59 souls that will be in heaven for eternity because of the work God did through the church that I gave my leather chair to. Half of these names were my neighbors. Two of them are in heaven today, seven years later. One of them was my daughter, who, believe it or not, we were really praying hard that that preacher's kid would come around. See, I can't, I can't do that. That is life. That's really life. I can't change somebody's eternity, but God invites me to be a part of it. I mean, I can spend it on me, but my stuff's going to get old and worn out, and I'm going to want new stuff next week. The other thing I can do with my stuff, and I love this one, is I can save. I love to save. I love security. For me, nothing in the bank means that we have several thousand dollars of a cushion. And I'm like, Jeff, we have nothing in the bank. For him, no. He can, he can walk by faith and not by sight. I love security, and I wrestle and argue with God, why did you make me a woman, and why did you wire me for security, and then why are you always asking me to give it up? And so I think I can save better than God can save. And this is my true confession to you. I have argued and argued with God. God, this whole church planning business, this ain't the business to be in. I mean, you take care of us. We are blessed, yes. But we don't exactly have the means to like save responsibly for our kids for college. And you keep asking more and more of us. And how in the world are we ever going to send these kids to college in three years? One's going, do you know what happened to me last month? In one single day, the God of angel armies had somebody very unexpected open an account for my kids, I can't touch it, just my kids for college. 
It has more money in it than if I had saved responsibly for 10 years like they tell you to, but nobody can ever do that. He can do more than we, he can do more with my 10% than I can do. There is one more area that gets me though, and it is the um, area of investment. See, I kind of like myself. I kind of think I'm a pretty smart girl. And you give me 10,000 bucks and buddy, I can turn it and make some money. And so I argue with God sometimes and say, you know, God, giving you 10%, that was good when I was little because, you know, one penny out of 10 is not that hard. One dollar out of 10 is not that hard. But a thousand dollars out of 10,000, God, do you know what I could do with the thousand dollars? I could do a lot with that. And it's kind of like, Um, I tried all week to think of an example you men would relate to. Um, The best I could come up with was baseball. And I know, I know there's only nine guys on a baseball team. But what if you were starting your own baseball team and you decided you were going to put yourself on the field as the 10th guy? Only in your limited resources, you could only afford little league players. And you were going up against a team with nine guys called the Giants, who were starting Bumgarner as their pitcher. Who do you think is going to do better? See, I think in my pride and in my greed sometimes that I can do better than God can with my 10%. And who am I kidding? He's the king of the universe. The other excuse I sometimes give him is like, God, have you seen our bills this month? We had a flat tire. We had a pump go out. We um, had to add a second braces. I mean, they are adding up some unexpecteds. And God, this month, we really cannot afford to be responsible with our bills if we trust you first. It got really quiet because I'm treading. I can't speak for you what God would tell you to do, but here is what I have learned in my life. When times get tougher and scarier and there is less, I am led by a husband who says, we're going to trust God first and no matter what. Now, you might be, if you're the female and you're the spiritual leader and your husband doesn't agree with that, you need to follow him. You don't win him by bucking the system. But for me, I have seen, like in Scripture, when there was a woman left with one jar of oil, and she goes to God and says, God, this is all I have left. We're going to eat this today, and tomorrow we die. And God said, I want you to give it away. And when she gave it away, guess what? He kept filling it up, and he did not stop filling it up until the famine season was over. There's another instance in scripture, the only time Jesus ever bragged on somebody for the way they used their money in the church was a woman who put two pennies, two mites in. And he said she's given more than everybody because she's given all she has. I don't know what happened the next day, but I imagine if Jesus pointed her out, he provided for her. And so listen, let me say this carefully. I believe that there are some if-then principles that govern our stuff and our money, meaning that if you spend more than you have, yes, you are going to get in trouble. 
Also, there is this law of the harvest in Scripture. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow in abundance, you'll reap in abundance. All right? But let's be cautious with this because God is not after your stuff. He is after your trust and your heart. I also think that those physical if-then principles about money are governed by a God who is not an if-then God. We don't want that kind of God. We have a God that is a while you were a stinking sinner, he gave his son to die for you. It had nothing to do with what you did. We have a God who says, even when you're faithless, I remain faithful because I cannot be anything else. The sun rises on the just and the unjust. I'm just telling you from my experience, from my logical brain, I have seen God do more with my 10% than I was capable of doing. I have seen him provide even when we had no means of provision at all. Before we started this church, our salary was $500 a month for a year. We lived in a house where our house payment was $900 a month. We were $400 short, not to mention food and all the other stuff you need for a family of five. Every month, we'd go to the mailbox, and in that mailbox would be a money order from God Loves You for the exact amount of our house payment until our house sold. Do you know what my husband would say? We're giving God the first 10%. I'm like, baby, then we can't make the house payment. Whatever comes our way, that's our rule in the Murphy. We're giving God the first 10%. And by the way, you're taking Angie to dinner because they're worse off than us. (sighs) Are you kidding me? Listen, I stand before you to proclaim that God is faithful and he is able. He has so much prepared for you that you can't even imagine. Why would we want our stuff to come between us and what he has promised? My next little practical advice would be this. Involve God in what you want. It's okay to want stuff, to desire stuff. He says, delight yourself in the Lord. I'll give you the desires of your heart. Listen, there are times we want a boat, we want a four-wheeler, we want to build a house. And, and here's something I just suggest. We get on our knees and we say, God, do you want what we want? In other words, God, is this house going to help us lead more people to you, or is this house going to cause our hearts to stray from you? Because if this purchase, if this want is going to make us stray, just pass us by. Shut the deal down. Just practical advice. We were told in marriage counseling, don't ever make a $100 purchase without going home for 24 hours and praying about it. It kind of grew into this principle. The next thing I would say is that If he chooses to let you have it, very quickly declare that everything you have belongs to him. He gives you that house, get on your knees and commit that. God, this is your house. We promise to use this house for your glory. God, this is your business. 
I don't know why you gave it to us, God, but whatever you give us, we're going to use it for you. Very quickly declare, it's not mine, it's God's. And then number six, go with me here for a minute. Every now and then, consider making a sacrifice that costs you so much that it would require you to fully rely on God. Remember that first passage we read about life that's really living? And it said, don't trust in riches which are uncertain. Trust and put your hope in God. See, many of us, we're generous to the point that we know we can figure it out and work it all out. My question is, are we really having to trust God in that? I gave up my leather chair. I didn't really need a leather chair. I wasn't really having to trust God in that. He was gracious and gave back to me. But I, every now and then, King David, one of the wealthiest men in the world, he said, I will not sacrifice anything to God that costs me nothing. And then he said, I'm going to give what's within my ability, and I'm also going to give what's beyond my ability to give. Because I believe with all my heart that God is the provider and that he's asking me to do this. Now, I, this is not a mandate. This is a, like, exciting, adventurous place for you to go with God sometimes. I'm reading this book that's rocking my world, Mark Batterson's book, All In. And there are stories in there that would blow your mind of people when God asks and other people confirms, confirm it in your life that they, they liquidated everything in their business and gave it away. And what was that promise we read in the beginning? He doesn't have to but he will give it back a hundred times more in this life and in the life to come. He tells a story about a wealthy, wealthy Jewish businessman who was also very, very generous. He owned empires and companies and lands and all kinds of things. And near the end of his life, a reporter asked him, how much are you worth? And the man thought for a minute, and he came up with a number, and the reporter quickly calculated back and said, there's no way that's your entire net worth. And the businessman said, oh, you asked the wrong question. You didn't ask me, how much do I have? You asked me, how much am I worth? So I very quickly calculated the amount of money I have given away in the last 12 months because a man is only worth what he gives away. There is a verse in the Bible, I know you've heard it before, John 3, 16, that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Rick Warren says that anything that begins with God ends in life. The same is true for our stuff and our money. Anything that starts with God ends with life that is truly life. But there's a word in there that kind of gets us caught up in the middle, and it's the word giving. Do you realize that when God 
saw that the world had fallen and there was sin in the world. And he decided how to save the world and bring salvation to us and eternal life and restore his kingdom on earth. Do you know how he decided to do that? I'm thinking you're God. Wipe everybody out and start over. Forget Adam and Eve. We're starting over. Push your magic button and make everybody love you. Snap your fingers and save the world. No, when God wanted to save the world, he did it by giving his one and only son. It cost him something. My challenge to us today is to ask God, God, what would it take? What would you want from me that would be a step to me experiencing the life that is truly life, that would make me have to fully rely and hope in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you that you own the world and everything in it. God, help us to remember it's a gift from you. Everything that is in our hand is because you put it there. God, give us the gift of faith and the gift of giving at my church so that we can change other people's eternity. And God, thank you that in the process, we get to know what it's like to live a life that's really living. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.